Well, brothers and sisters, as we get started today with this passage of Scripture, I think it's important that we recognize the parabolic nature of the passage that we're looking at, parabolic nature. Uh, When Mark says that uh, this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is a parable, well, then we should immediately begin to look for the central meaning of the text. You know, all of the details of this text that we just went through are there to give us uh, a clear picture of the lesson that the Lord wants us to learn. That's true. And there are many details. Uh, But sometimes we can get so caught up in the details that we lose sight of the fundamental message that's lying at the base of any given text. And so here, before we get into any of the details, I want to back out, sort of zoom out, uh, give you guys a a bird's eye view, and uh, give you or present what I think is the main message that we can take away from this passage today. So let me simplify uh, this entire text And I'll do it by using the words of Psalm chapter 2. Because there in verse 12, the psalmist says this. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, the reason I think that sort of captures the entire lesson of the parable is that, uh, well, think about it. This parable um, is about a vineyard with unfaithful vine dressers. If you think about the, uh, the characters in the story, you'll know that the owner of the vineyard represents God. The vineyard itself is the nation of Israel. The vine dressers are the leaders of the people. These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And so when the owner sends his servants who represent the prophets to come and collect the fruit from the vineyard, the vine, dress, uh, the vine dressers reject and mistreat those servants. And yet the owner responds with a final uh, act of patience and grace, and he sends in the place of all his prophets his very own son, And so we know this is uh, the character in the story that represents Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. And the owner says to himself, surely now they will respect my son. So in other words, the parable that we're looking at is a presentation of sorts of the whole history of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it has been unfolding throughout redemptive history. This is a parable about God's covenant dealings with his people Israel. You remember when Jesus Christ came into the world, uh, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Uh, He came into the world and the world knew him not. And so it's very clear in the gospel records that Jesus was ultimately rejected by the very rulers and leaders of God's people. Well, here when the sun comes, the owner of the vineyard really has one message for the vine dressers, and that one message is kiss the sun. You see, all they had to do was reverence the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he was, and all they had to do was give him the honor that was due unto his name. As the psalmist declares, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. 
But you know, we also see that uh, Psalm 2 gives us a warning, and that's why I think Psalm 2 is so good to capture this passage. Uh, It doesn't just say, kiss the son, but it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. So here, what we're looking at is not just the gospel that's being offered and presented to the people, but also a warning that comes attached to the gospel call. And of course, what we see is that the rulers in the parable did not heed the warning that came But instead, they set out to kill the son and cast him out of his own vineyard. And so in the end, the rulers received the punishment that they deserved. Now, all of that is really just the big picture. I didn't want to just go into the details of the text before we actually looked at the big picture, because we need something of a roadmap. We want to see exactly what's going on in this text historically and redemptively. I don't want you to miss uh, what we call the the forest uh, for the trees. Uh, We know that this parable is about the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus Christ by the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the rulers of the people. And it's about the judgment that they received as a result. Historically speaking, we know that that judgment came in AD 70 when the Roman armies came into Jerusalem, destroyed the city and also uh, the temple. But as we look at some of the details of the parable itself now, we sort of zoom in. I want us to make a few observations that can set us up for some points of application. Uh, Because it's not just a parable for the sake of telling us a nice story or reminding us of a history that has nothing to do with us. Uh, We need to begin to ask the question, how can we apply the lesson of this text to our lives today? Because remember, congregation, as you read the word of God, your job is to seek the will of the Lord for your life. You don't read the word of God like a spectator. You read the word of God with a deep interest about what it has to say to you in your life and in your situation right now. So to help with that, I want to break this passage up into three points. We're going to break it down in an outline of three points. And to help you remember these uh, points, each one of these begins with the letter P. First, I want us to look at God's purpose in planting the vineyard. Second, I want us to see God's patience in dealing with the vine dressers. And third, I want us to see God's punishment in the vindication of his son. So altogether, we have the purpose, the patience, and the punishment. And we'll take these considerations one at a time, looking for points of practical application as we go along. So first of all, we begin with the purpose of God in planting the vineyard. And here, the thing that I want to emphasize, and this is so important, is that no matter how the whole thing turns out in the end, the one thing that we must always maintain is that God is always good and gracious in his dealings with men. God is always good and always gracious in his dealings with men. And the reason that I say this is that when we look at the details of what we have in the word of God as a whole, we find that it gives us a description of God's intention and a description of his expectation for the lives of his covenant people. 
The way you can see that from this passage is by noticing that when Jesus uses the picture, the story of the vineyard, what he's actually doing is hearkening back to the Old Testament prophets. And here we know that he's picking up on the parable of the vineyard. It's more like a song from Isaiah chapter 5. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter 5 and you walk with me through that text, uh, we'll begin to uh, see some of the details that are there. And what you'll see is that what I'm saying in this point that we're looking at is absolutely true. God is giving us there not just a description of the process, but also of the purpose he had in planting the vineyard of his people Israel. Look at that passage in verses 1 through 5. The prophet Isaiah is singing about the Lord. And in this uh, song, he calls the Lord his well-beloved. He says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O habitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Now, you can see from that reading that the parable that Jesus is giving in our text, in fact, is a retelling of Isaiah's vineyard song, uh, right there in Isaiah chapter 5. But the reason I want us to consider the details here is that they give us something very, very important to consider. And that is that God has invested himself in the lives of his people. The point of application, God has invested himself into your life. And God is not passive. God is not careless. God is not ambivalent. God has invested himself into the lives of his covenant people. So when I say invested, I mean that he has positively done for them all the different things that are necessary for them so that they can live and thrive and flourish and bring forth an abundance of good fruit to the glory of his name. So when you think about the purpose of God, you have to remember that ultimately his purpose is to bring glory to his own name. You do realize that, right? God's ultimate purpose is to bring glory to his own name. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said to the disciples, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. God wants to glorify himself through the fruit that we produce in our lives by his grace. At the same time, however, we need to see that when we're talking about the purpose of God, we're also talking about the way that God, in fact, has invested himself into the lives of his people. Notice that there's several ways that this comes out just in this short text. 
First of all, notice that we see it in the location that he chose for the vineyard. Verse 1, Isaiah 5. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. You see, of all the places uh, where this vineyard could have been planted, God chose the most fertile ground. He put it on a very fruitful hill. Uh, Secondly, we see it in the preparations, the personal preparations that he himself made. Verse 2 says he dug it up and cleared out all the stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. So here we see the quality of God's work. Think about the quality and the excellence of God's own work. He didn't just plant the seed in soil that was unprepared. He dug up the rocks. He took them out of the way. And in terms of the seed that he chose, he also made sure that it came from the choicest stock. Third, we can see it in the expectations that he had. And not only did he build a tower and put a wine press in the vineyard, that tells us implicitly what he was expecting to come out of this work, but we also see it explicitly at the end of verse 2. It says, he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But then unfortunately, in a word of disappointment, the text says, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, the next thing we see in verses 3 and 4 of that text is that God provides us with a declaration of his sincerity. And I point that out because I already know what's happening in our minds theologically. And we're saying, well, God is sovereign. And the outcome that actually took place is the outcome that he had been working towards. That might be true in the secret plan and predestinating purposes of God. But if you walk through the text, that is not the way the text is presented to us. Uh, We are supposed to enter into the wording of the text to see what lessons we can learn for our lives. And so God comes down to our level and he speaks to us as his people. And he says, listen to the way that I'm formulating my words in this text. So notice what the Lord is doing for us. In verses 3 and 4, he's providing us with a declaration of his sincerity. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? In other words, the Lord wants us to consider very carefully that no matter how things turned out in the end, everything he did for the people was good and gracious. It's true that ultimately Israel went astray, but it's not true that they can now turn around and blame God for their sins and rebellion. And one of the most important theological principles I could ever give to you as you study the word of God is that um, if anyone is ever blessed in their life, if anyone is ever saved in the end, all of the glory, all of the credit goes to God in Jesus Christ alone. If anyone is ever blessed, if anyone is ever saved in the end, God gets all the glory. Amen? Yes. However, on the flip side of that, 
The other side of the principle is, but if anyone is ever cursed or condemned in the end, then all the blame goes to them alone. God is never to be blamed for the sins that men commit. This is what the Reformed theologians meant when they said that God is not the author of sin. And a maxim that you need to remember is that God is good and that he is good all the time. So here, the point that we need to uh, take with us and apply to our lives is that God has in fact been so good to us here in this room that we have absolutely no excuse. There's no way that we can ever turn around and blame God for the bad things that we do in our lives. It's just not possible. And as long as we keep thinking that it is possible, as long as we keep having a posture of suspicion toward God, then we will never bring ourselves to true repentance for our sins. Our faith in Jesus Christ will not be sincere, and we will only distance ourselves from the Lord our God. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, this whole uh, point is summarized. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt any man. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The reason then that the sins of the rulers against God was so bad was that God had done so much for them in the covenant of his grace. Uh, just as uh, they should respond, they should have responded by kissing the son when he showed up. So the point of application for us is that we too should remember that God has done even more for us in his son, Jesus Christ. We have all the more reason to kiss the son and to obey his word. The fruit that God is looking for in our lives is a love for Christ, a love for one another, and a commitment to living our lives according to the word of God. So you can see just from what we looked at uh, that God had a purpose in planting the vineyard. We, we move now to the second point from his purpose for the vineyard uh, to his patience with the vine dressers. Patience with the vine dressers. You know, as you read this parable, one of the things that should strike you is the fact that God is patient with the people, even in the face of open and continuous rebellion. There is ongoing rebellion on the part of the people, and God remains patient. Notice how that comes out in the story of our parable in Mark chapter 12 by the use of these terms again and again. And therefore still, those terms right there. And though the people rebel, we see that God reaches out again and again, over and over. He comes to them in the messengers that he sends, and he gives them another chance. Look at verses 2 through 6 in our text. It says, Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. But again, he sent them another servant. 
And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, so there's a lot of agains in that statement, and many other servants he sent. But they treated them the same way, beating some and killing some. Therefore still, having one son, his own beloved, He also sent him to them at last, saying, they will respect my son. So as you read through all the uh, stages of this interaction between God and his covenant people, you might begin to wonder why God would allow this rebellion to last so long. You know, I mean, if uh, if it was me or if it was you, we wouldn't have put up with half of those offenses, would we? Our pride would have been inflamed. I am the owner of this vineyard. These vine dressers work for me. How dare they they shamefully mistreat my servants who are simply coming to fulfill the contract that we established, simply coming to receive what is rightfully mine. We would have been incensed. But that's not what we see here in this text. And it's amazing. Instead, what we see is the perfection of divine patience. The perfection of of divine patience. So here we can learn another lesson for our lives on either side of this story. No matter where you plug yourself in to this story, there is a lesson for you. Uh, First of all, we can learn that the only reason that you and I were not destroyed in our previous lives of sin is that God was in fact patient with us for all these years. We know that at any moment when we were living in sin and rebellion against him and his word, he could have come and taken us right out of this world instantly. We would have deserved any punishment that God would have given us at that time. But God didn't do that. Instead, he continued to keep us alive. He continued to work his grace into our lives. And he did that because he knew that one day he would call us by the power of his grace. He would fill us with the presence of his Holy Spirit. He would graft us into Christ and into his church. He would give us the faith that we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Can you imagine what it would have been like if God decided the very first time that we put our fist in his face by an open act of rebellion to bring us into judgment. If God did that, then none of us in this room would be here today. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that even right now, God is being patient with many of his chosen people. He says that the reason Jesus hasn't come back again, we're talking about the return of Christ is that God wants to save his people. He says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Now, on the other side of that, if you slip yourself into a different character of the story, there's an application uh, for those of us who have been wronged by someone else. I won't spend too much time here, but it's worth saying that God is giving us somewhat of a model to follow. 
How can we read this passage and see the patience that he has had towards his people and also toward us? And then turn around and have absolutely no patience toward the people that he has lovingly brought into our lives. There's a lesson that can be taken from the example of the owner of the vineyard. He's not quick to move into judgment. He's not quick to condemn his own people. He's very slow. He's very patient. And he gives his people every opportunity to repent. Now, as we move from the second point here to the third and final point, we go from God's patience with the vine dressers now to his punishment in the vindication of his son. And here, what we need to keep in mind is that patience with sinners is not the same thing as permission to sin. Does that make sense to you? God having patience with sinners is not the same thing as God giving them permission to sin. So often people just assume that because God is not judging them right now, you know, in the moment, the moment of their sin, you know, lightning doesn't come out of heaven and strike them instantaneous, that somehow he doesn't care very much about their sin. And when people assume that or they presume that, then there's nothing to stop them from continuing in their sin. And they go from one sin to another sin And they increase in their wickedness. In fact, this is the mindset that we see described in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. There the Bible says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Just because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do more evil. But when we look at the parable that Jesus is giving us in our text, we learn that the patience of God does not continue forever. And that's key. Because if the patience of God just continued forever, endlessly, uh, then it wouldn't be called patience. It would be called permission. We would be saying, God doesn't care. God doesn't mind. Patience gives us uh, the right perspective because it reminds us that there is a time that's given to us that's sufficient for us to turn back to God. And when that time runs out, then the punishment will come. In our text, we see that the vine dressers got so used to lording it over the vineyard They got so used to treating the messengers of the owner with such contempt that they became hardened enough even to kill the owner's son. Uh, They were so settled in their lifestyle. They were so comfortable in their sin that when the son of the landowner, even the heir of the vineyard himself, came and called them to account, it made absolutely no impression on their hearts and minds. They had no respect for the son. And so they showed no restraint in rejecting him and ultimately putting him to death. And this act of putting him to death was not a sudden reaction of the rulers in this text. Notice uh, this was an act of premeditation. Uh, They planned it. They counseled together. They gathered themselves. As verse 7 of Psalm 2 says, 
against the Lord and against his anointed. So listen to what the text says. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Well, because of all this, God did respond with an act of judgment against them. And again, historically, this was accomplished in A.D. 70. But one interesting thing to note here, and this is just looking at our Savior, is that Jesus does something that's very much like Nathan the prophet. You know, when Nathan comes to David to confront him about his sin with Bathsheba, Uh, What does he do? But he first of all tells him a parable. He gives him a story. And by doing that, he was able to bait David into judging the man who was in the parable. Uh, Then when David pronounced judgment on the man who was in the parable, Nathan sprung the trap. Uh, He looked at David in the eyes, probably pointing at him, and he said, you are the man. Well, in the same way, Jesus uh, tells this parable, and then he turns to the Pharisees, and he actually asks them a question. Now, that doesn't come out so clearly in Mark chapter 12, but it does come out very clearly in Matthew chapter 21. This comes out in Matthew's account, so let me read Matthew's account to show you how Jesus springs this trap. He says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whosoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomsoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. In the final analysis, there are several things that I want to sort of tuck back together and give you as we prepare to close this message. First of all, if you just think about the details that we saw, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the telling of the parable, what it means historically, uh, there are at least a couple of things we should see. First, God is the source of every good thing that we enjoy in our lives. His purpose in doing us good is to bring us to the place where we love him and serve him and glorify him by the good fruit that we bear in our lives. And when I say good fruit, I mean every single area of your life, every single relationship, every single nuance there is to your identity. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, rulers and members of the congregation of this church. I'm talking about every possible area of your life, in the home, in the church, on the job, in the world. God is the source of every good thing that we enjoy in our lives. His purpose in doing us good is to bring us to the place where we love him and we serve him and we glorify him. 
by the good fruit that we bear in our lives. The second thing we should see is even when we reject the goodness of God, he continues to be patient with us. His patience is an extension of his goodness so that Paul can say in Romans chapter 2, do you not know, O man, that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? When we look at the patience of God, this is an extension of his love and goodness toward us. And we should use it. We should use it to motivate us to reassess our lives and make sure that we are right with the Lord our God. Finally, point number three, when men continue to persist in their rebellion and they reject the provisions that God has made for them in his son, their judgment is absolutely sure to come. All the time of God's patience is also a time when these unrepentant people are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of wrath. That's also what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 2. God is patient, but when we abuse, neglect, and reject his patience, then we only have the punishment to bear. And so here, with all of these points that we've seen in the details of the text, we're really just led right back to the main lesson that we saw at the very beginning. And that is that this parable is a gracious and sincere call to each and every single one of us to kiss the Son, to kiss the Son. God has sent his Son into this world to be our Savior. And we have only one of two possible ways to respond. Either we bow the knee to God's Son, Jesus Christ, as the rightful heir of the vineyard of this entire world, or we side with the rulers who are in this text against the Lord and against his anointed. And congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer is that all of us would do the former and receive the everlasting life that is found in Christ. For as the psalmist says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen.